for those of you who forget where we are, Orwell has visited with Psyche. They do not come to a common understanding of what the circumstance is. Orwell listens to Bardia and the Fox about what the likelihood is that she's either being used erotically by a monster or by some brigand on the mountain. And she realizes that her father is going off on a lion hunt, and so she's going to have some time to get back to Psyche and try to deal with things. So chapter 14. It seemed long to me before the palace was stirring, though it stirred early because of the king's hunting. I waited till that noise was well begun. Then I rose and dressed in such clothes as I had worn the day before and took the same urn. This time I put in it a lamp and a little pitcher of oil and a long band of linen about a span and a half broad, such as bridesmaids wear in gloam, wrapped over and over round them. Mine had lain in my chest ever since the marriage night of Psyche's mother. Then I called up Pooby and had food brought to me, of which I ate some, and some I put in the urn under the band. When I knew by the horses' hooves that, and horns and shouting that the king's party was gone, I put on my veil and a cloak and went down. I sent the first slave I met to find whether Bardia had, were gone to the hunting, and if he were in the palace, to send him to me. I waited for him in the pillar room. It was a strange freedom to be in there alone, and indeed, amid all my cares, I could not help perceiving how the house was, as it were, lightened and set at liberty by the absence of the king. I thought from their looks that all the family felt it. <coughs> Bardia came to me. Bardia, said I, I must go again to the mountain. It's impossible you should go with me, lady, he said. I was left out of the hunting, ill luck for me, for one purpose only, to watch over the house. I must even lie here at nights till the king's back. This dashed me very much. Oh, Bardia, said I, what shall I do? I'm in great straits. It's on my sister's business. Bardia rubbed his forefinger across his upper lip in a way he had when he was graveled. And you can't ride, he said. I wonder now, but no, that's foolishness. There's no horse to be trusted with a rider that can't ride. And a few days hence won't serve. The best would be to give you another man. But Bardia, it must be you. No one else would be able. It's a very secret errand. I could let Graham off with you for two days and a night. Who is Graham? The small dark one. He's a good man. But can he hold his tongue? It's more a question if he could ever loosen it. We get hardly ten words from him in, in as many days. But he's a true man, true to me, above all for I once had the chance to do him a good turn. It will not be like going with you, Bardia. It's the best you can do, lady, unless you can wait. But I said I could not wait, and Bardia had Graham called. He was a thin-faced man, very black-eyed, and, I thought, looked at me as if he feared me. Bardia told him to get his horse and await me where the little lane meets the road into the city. As soon as he was gone, I said, Now, Bardia, get me a dagger. A dagger, lady, and for what? To use as a dagger. Come, Bardia, you know I mean no ill. He looked strangely at me, but got it. I put it on at my belt where the sword had hung yesterday. Farewell, Bardia, said I. Farewell, lady. Do you go for longer than a night? 
I don't know, I don't know, said I. Then all in haste, and leaving him to wonder, I went out and went on foot by the lane and joined Graham. He set me up on the horse, touching me, unless it was my fantasy, as one who touched a snake or a witch. And we began. Nothing could be less like that day's journey and the last. I never got more than yes lady or no lady out of Graham all day. There was much rain, and even between the showers the wind was wet. There was a gray driving sky in the little hills and valleys which had been so distinct with brightness and shade for Bardia and me the other day were all sunk into one piece. We had started many hours later, and it was nearer evening than noon when we came down from the saddle into that secret valley. And there, at last, as if by some trick of the gods, which perhaps it was, the weather cleared so that it was hard not to think the valley had a sunlight of its own, and the blustering rains merely ringed it about as the mountains did. I brought Graham to the place where Bardia and I had passed the night and told him to await me there and not to cross the river. I must go over it myself. It may be I shall recross it to your side by nightfall or in the night, but I think that whatever time I spend on this side, I will spend over yonder near the ford. Do not come to me there unless I call you. He said, as always, yes, lady, and looked as if he liked this adventure very little. I went to the ford about a long bow shot from Graham. My heart was still as ice, heavy as lead, cold as earth, but I was free now from all doubting and deliberating. I set my foot on the first stone of the crossing and called Psyche's name. She must have been very close, for almost at once I saw her coming down to the bank. We might have been two images of love, the happy and the stern. She so young, so bright-faced, joy in her eye and limbs, I, burdened and resolute, bringing pain in my hand. So I spoke truly, Maya, she said, as soon as I had crossed the water and we had embraced. The king has been no hindrance to you, has he? Salute me for a prophetess. This startled me a moment, for I had forgotten her foretelling. But I put it aside to be thought of later. Now I had my work to do. I must not, now of all times, begin doubting and pondering again. She brought me a little way from the water. I don't know into what part of her phantom palace, and we sat down. I threw back my hood and put off my veil and sat down the urn beside me. Oh, Orwell, said Psyche, what a storm cloud in your face. That's how you looked when you were the most angry with me as a child. Was I ever angry? Ah, Psyche, do you think I ever scolded or denied you without grieving my heart ten times more than yours? Sister, I meant to find no fault with you. Then find no fault with me today either, for indeed we must talk very gravely. Now listen, Psyche. Our father is no father. Your mother, peace upon her, is dead. And you have never seen her kindred. I have been, I have tried to be, and still must be, all the father and mother and kin you have, and all the king too. Maya, you have been all this to me, all this and more since the day I was born. You and the dear fox are all I ever had. Yes, the fox. I'll have something to say of him too. And so, Psyche, if anyone is to care for you or counsel you or shield you, or if anyone is to tell you what belongs to the honor of our blood, it can be only I. But why are you saying all this, Orwell? You do not think I have left off loving you because I now have a husband to love as well. If you would understand it, that makes me love you. Why, it makes me love everyone and everything more. 
This made me shudder, but I hid it and went on. I know you love me, Psyche, said I, and I think I should not live if you didn't. But you must trust me, too. She said nothing. And now I was right on top of the terrible thing, and it almost struck me dumb. I cast about for ways to begin it. You spoke last time, I said, of the day we got the thorn out of your hand. We hurt you that time, Psyche, but we did right. Those who love must hurt. I must hurt you again today. And, Psyche, you are still little more than a child. You cannot go your own way. You will let me rule and guide you. Orwell, I have a husband to guide me now. It was difficult not to be angered or terrified by her harping on it. I bit my lip, then said, Alas, child, it is about that very husband, as you call him, that I must grieve you. I looked straight at her eyes and said sharply, Who is he? What is he? A god, she said low and quivering, and I think the god of the mountain. Alas, Psyche, you are deceived. If you knew the truth, you would die rather than lie in his bed. The truth? Well, you must face it, child. Be very brave. Let me pull out this thorn. What sort of god would he be who dares to not show his face? Dares not? You come near to making me angry, Oroa. But think, Psyche. Nothing that's beautiful hides its face. Nothing that's honest hides its name. No, no. Listen. In your heart you must see the truth, however you try to brazen it out with words. Think. Whose bride were you called? The brutes. And think again. If it's not the brute, who else dwells in these mountains? Thieves and murderers, men worse than brutes, and as lecherous as goats, we may be sure. Are you apprised they'd let pass if you fell in their way? There's your lover, child, either a monster, shadow and monster in one, maybe, a ghostly undead thing, or a salt villain whose lips, even on your feet or the hem of your robe, would be a stain to our blood. She was silent a long time, her eyes on her lap. And so, Psyche, I began at last, tenderly as I could, but she tossed away the hand that I had laid on hers. You mistake me, Orwell. If I am pale, it is with anger. There, sister, I have conquered it. I'll forgive you. You mean, I'll believe you mean, nothing but good. Yet how, or why, you can have blackened and tormented your soul with such thoughts. But no more of that. If ever you loved me, put them away now. Blackened by thoughts, they're not only mine. Tell me, Psyche, who are the two wisest men we know? Why, the fox for one. For the second, I know so few. I suppose Bardia is wise in his own way. You said yourself, that night in the five-walled room, that he was a prudent man. Now, Psyche, these two, so wise and so different, are both agreed with each other and with me concerning this lover of yours. Agreed without doubt. All three of us are certain, either shadow brute or felon. You have told them my story, Orwell. It was ill done. I gave you no leave. My lord gave no leave. Oh, Orwell, it was more like Bata than you. I could not help it if my face reddened with anger, but I would not be turned aside. Doubtless, I said, there is no end to, secrets, to the secrecy of this, this husband, as you call him. Child, has his vile love so turned your brain that you can't see the plainest thing? A god? Yet on your own showing he hides and slinks and whispers, Mum, and keep counsel, and don't betray me like a runaway slave. I am not certain that she had listened to this. What she said was, The fox, too. That is very strange. I never thought he would have believed in the brute at all. 
I had not said he did, but if that was what she took out of my words, I thought it no part of my duty to set her right. It was an error helping her towards the main truth. I had need of all help to drive her thither. Neither he nor I nor Bardia, said I, believes for one moment in your fancy that it is the god, no more than that this wild heath is a palace. And be sure, Psyche, that if we could ask every man or woman in Gloam, all would say the same. The truth is too clear. But what is all this to me? How should they know? I am his wife. I know. How can you know if you've never seen him? Orwell, how can you be so simple? I, how could I not know? But how, Psyche? What am I to answer to such a question? It's not fitting. It is, and especially to you, sister, who are a virgin. That matronly primness from the child she was went near to ending my patience. It was almost, but I think now she did not mean it so, as if she taunted me. Yet I ruled myself. Well, if you are so sure, Psyche, you will not refuse to put it to the test. What test? Though I need none myself. I have brought a lamp and oil. See, here they are. I set them down beside her. Wait till he or it sleeps. Then look. I cannot do that. Ah, you see, you will abide no test. And why? Because you are not sure yourself. If you were, you'd be eager to do it. If he is, as you say, a god, one glimpse will set all our doubts at rest. What you call our dark thoughts will be put to flight, but you daren't. Oh, Orwell, what evil you think. The reason I cannot look at him, least of all by such trickery as you have me do, is that he has forbidden me. I can think, Bardia and the fox can think, of one reason only for such a forbidding, and of one only for your obeying it then you know little of love. You fling my virginity in my face again, do you? Better it than the sty you're in. So be it. Of what you now call love, I no, do know nothing. You can whisper about it to Redeville better than to me, or to Ungut's girls, maybe, or to the king's doxies. I know another sort of love. You shall find what it's like. You shall not. Orwell, Orwell, you are raving, said Psyche, herself unangered gazing at me large-eyed, sorrowful, but nothing humble about her sorrow. You would have thought she was my mother, not I, almost hers. I had known this long time that the old, meek, biddable psyche has, was gone forever, yet it shocked me afresh. <coughs> yes, I said, I was raving. You had made me angry. But I had thought, you will set me right, I don't doubt if I am mistaken, that all loves alike were eager to clear the thing they loved of vile charges brought against it if they could. Tell a mother her child is hideous. If it's beautiful, she'll show it. No forbidding would stop her. If she keeps it hidden, the charge is true. You're afraid of the test, Psyche. I am afraid, no, I am ashamed to disobey him. Then, even at the best, look what you make of him, something worse than our father, who that loved you would be angry at your breaking so unreasonable a command, and for so good a reason? Foolishness, Orwell, she answered, shaking her head. He is a god. He has good grounds for what he does, for be sure. How should I know of them? I am only his simple psyche. Then you will not do it. You think, you say, you think, that you can prove him a god and set me free from the fears that sicken my heart, but you will not do it. I would if I could, Orwell. 
I looked about me. The sun was almost setting behind the saddle. In a little while she would send me away. I rose up. An end of this must be made, I said. You shall do it, Psyche, I command you. Dear Maya, my duty is no longer to you. Then my life shall end with it, said I. I flung back my cloak further, thrust out my bare left arm, and struck the dagger into it until the point pricked out on the other side. Pulling the iron back through the wound was the worst pain, but I can hardly believe how little I felt it. Orwell, are you mad? cried Psyche, leaping up. You'll find linen in that urn. Tie up my wound, said I, sitting down and holding my arm out to let the blood fall on the heather. I had thought she might scream and wring her hands or faint, but I was deceived. She was pale enough, but had all her wits about her. She bound my arm. The blood came seeping through fold after fold, but she staunched it in the end. My stroke had been lucky enough. If I had known as much then as I do now about the inside of an arm, I might not, who knows, have had the resolution to do it. The bandaging could not be done in a moment. The sun was lower and the air colder when we were able to talk again. Maya, said Psyche, what did you do that for? To show you I am an earnest girl. Listen, you have driven me to desperate courses. I give you your choice. Swear on this edge, with my blood still wet on it, that you will this very night do as I have commanded you, or else I will kill you first and then myself. Orwell, said she, very queen-like, raising her head, you might have spared that threat of killing me. All your power over me lies in the other. Then swear, girl, you never knew me break my word. The look in her face now was one I did not understand. I think a lover, I mean a man who loved, might look so on a woman who had been false to him. And at last she said, You are indeed teaching me about kinds of love I did not know. It is like looking into a deep pit. I am not sure whether I like your kind better than hatred. Oh, Orwell, to take my love for you, because you know it goes down to my very roots and cannot be diminished by any other newer love, and then to make of it a tool, a weapon, a thing of policy and mastery, an instrument of torture, I begin to think I never knew you. Whatever comes after, something that was between us dies here. Enough of your subtleties, said I. Both of us die here, in plainest truth and blood, unless you swear. If I do, said she said hotly, it will not be for any doubt of my husband or his love. It will only be because I think better of him than of you. He cannot be cruel like you. I'll not believe it. He will know how I was tortured into my disobedience. He will forgive me. He need never know, said I. The look of scorn she gave me flayed my soul, and yet this very nobleness in her, had I not taught it to her, what was there in her that was not my work, and now she used it to look at me as if I were base beneath all baseness. You thought I would hide it, thought I would not tell him, she said, each word like the rubbing of a file across raw flesh. Well, it's all of a piece. Let us, as you say, make it end. You grow more and more a stranger to me at each word. And I had loved you so, loved, honored, trusted, and while it was fit, obeyed. And now, but I can't have your blood on my threshold. You chose your threat well. I'll swear. Where's your dagger? So I had won my victory, and my heart was in torment. I had a terrible longing to unsay all my words and beg her forgiveness but I held out the dagger. 
the oath on edge, as we call it. It is our strongest and gloom. And even now, said Psyche, I know what I do. I know I am betraying the best of lovers, and that perhaps before sunrise all my happiness may be destroyed forever. This is the price you have put on your life. Well, I must pay it. She took her oath. My tears burst out, and I tried to speak, but she turned her face away. The sun is almost down, she said. Go. You have saved your life. Go and live it as you can. I found I was becoming afraid of her. I made my way back to the stream, crossed it somehow, and the shadow of the saddle leaped across the whole valley as the sun set. Chapter 15 I think I must have fainted when I got to this side of the water, for there seems to be some gap in my memory between the fording and becoming fully aware again of three things, cold and the pain in my arm and thirst. I drank ravenously. Then I wanted food, and now and first remembered that I had left it in the urn with the lamp. My soul rose up against calling Graham, who was very irksome to me. I felt, though I saw it to be folly even at the time, that if Bardia had come with me instead, all might have been different and better. And away my thoughts wandered to imagine all he would be doing, and saying now, if he had, till suddenly I remembered what business had brought me there. I was ashamed that I had thought, even for a moment, of anything else. My purpose was to sit by the ford, watching till I should see a light, which would be Psyche lighting her lamp. It would vanish when she covered and hid it. Then, most likely far later, there would be a light again. She would be looking at her vile master in its sleep. And after that, very, very soon after it, I hoped there would be Psyche creeping through the darkness and sending a sort of whispered call, Maya, Maya, across the stream. And I would be halfway over it in an instant. This time it would be I who helped her at the ford. She would be all weeping and dismayed as I folded her in my arms and comforted her. For now she would know who were her true friends and would love me again and would thank me, shuddering, for saving her from the thing the lamp had shown. These were dear thoughts to me when they came and while they lasted. But there were other thoughts, too. Try as I could, I could not quite put it out of my head, the fear that I had been wrong. A real God, was it possible? If I could never dwell on that part of it, but I could never dwell on that part of it. What came back and back to my mind was the thought of Psyche herself somehow. I never knew well how, ruined, lost, robbed of all joy, a wailing, wandering shape for whom I had wrecked everything. More times than I could count that night, I had the wish, tyrannously strong, to recross the cold water, to shout out that I forgave her her promise, that she was not to light the lamp that I had advised her wrongly, but I governed it. Neither the one sort of thoughts nor the other was more than the surface of my mind. Beneath them, deep as the deep ocean sea whereof the fox spoke, was the cold, hopeless abyss of her scorn, her unlove, her very hatred. How could she hate me when my arm throbbed and burned with the wound <coughs> I had given it for her love? Cruel, cruel psyche, I sobbed. But then I saw that I was falling back to the dreams of my sickness, so I set my wits against it and bestirred myself. Whatever happened, I must watch and be sane. The first light came soon enough and vanished again. I said to myself, though indeed once I had her oath, I never doubted her faith to it. So... All's well this far. It made me wonder, as at a new question, what I meant by well. But the thought passed. 
The cold grew bitter. My arm was a bar of fire. The rest of me, an icicle, chained to that bar, but never melted. I began to see that I was doing a perilous thing. I might die thus wounded and fasting, or at least getting such a chill as would bring my death soon after. And out of that seed there grew up in one moment a huge, foolish flower of fancies, for at once, leaping over all question of how it should come about, I saw myself laid on a pyre, and Psyche, she knew now, she loved me again now, beating her breast and weeping and repenting all her cruelties. The fox and Bardia were there, too. Bardia wept fast. Everyone loved me once I was dead. But I was ashamed to write all these follies. What checked them was the next appearing of the light. To my eyes, long swilled with darkness, it seemed brighter than you would have thought possible. Bright and still, a home-like thing in that wild place, and for a time longer than I expected it shone, and was still, and the whole world was still around it. Then the stillness broke. A great voice, which rose up from somewhere close to the light, went through my whole body in such a swift wave of terror that it blotted out even the pain in my arm. It was no ugly sound. Even in its implacable sternness it was golden. My terror was the salute that mortal flesh gives to immortal things. And after, barely after the strong soaring of its incomprehensible speech, came the sound of weeping. I think if those old words have a meaning, my heart broke then. But neither the immortal sound nor the tears of her who wept lasted for more than two heartbeats. Heartbeats, I say, but I think my heart did not beat till they were over. A great flash laid the valley bare to my eyes. Then it thundered as if the sky broke in two, straight above my head. Lightnings, thick following one another, pricked the valley left, right, near and far, everywhere. Each flash showed falling trees. The imagined pillars of Psyche's house were going down. They seemed to fall silently, for the thunder hid their crashing. But there was another noise it could not hide. Somewhere away on my left the walls of the mountain itself were breaking. I saw, or I thought I saw, fragments of rock hurled about and striking on other rocks and rising into the air again like a child's ball that bounces. The river rose so quickly that I was overtaken by its rush before I could stumble back from it, wet to my middle, but that made little odds, for with the storm there had come a tyrannous pelting rain. Hair and clothes were already a mere sponge. But beaten and blinded though I was, I took these things for a good sign. They showed, so it seemed to me, that I was right. Psyche had roused some dreadful thing, and these were its ragings. It had waked. She had not hidden her light soon enough, or else, yes, that was most likely. It had only feigned to be sleeping. It might be a thing that never needed sleep. It might, no doubt, destroy both her and me. But she would know. She would, at worst, die undeceived, disenchanted, reconciled to me. Even now we might escape. Failing that, we could die together. I rose up, bent double, under the battery of the rain to cross the stream. I believe I could never have crossed it, the deep, foaming death race it had now become, even if I had been left free to try. I was not left free. There came as if it were a lightning that endured. That is, the look of it was the look of lightning, pale, dazzling, without warmth or comfort, showing each smallest thing with fierce distinctness, but it did not go away. <laughs> this great light stood over me as still as a candle burning in a curtained and shuttered room. In the center of the light was something like a man. 
It was strange. It is strange that I cannot tell you its size. Its face was far above me, yet memory does not show the shape as a giant's. And I do not know whether it stood or seemed to stand on the far side of the water, or on the water itself. Though this light stood motionless, my glimpse of the face was as swift as a true flash of lightning. I could not bear it for longer. Not my eyes only, but my heart and blood and very brain were too weak for that. A monster, the shadow brute that I and all Gloam had imagined, would have subdued me less than the beauty this face wore. And I think anger, what men call anger, would have been more supportable than the passionless and measured rejection with which it looked upon me. Though my body crouched where I could almost have touched his feet, his eyes seemed to send me from him to an endless distance. He rejected, denied, answered, and worst of all, knew all I had thought, done, or been. A Greek verse says that even the gods cannot change the past. But is this true? He made it to be as if from the beginning I had known that Psyche's lover was a god, and as if all my doubtings, fears, guessings, debatings, questionings of Bardia, questionings of the fox, all the rummage and business of it, had been trumped up foolery, dust blown into my own eyes by myself. You who read my book judge. Was it so? Or, at least, had it been so at the very past before this god changed the path? Past? And if they can indeed change the past, why do they never do so in mercy? The thunder had ceased, I think, the moment this light, still light came. There was great silence when the gods spoke to me. And as there was no anger, what men call anger, in his face, so there was none in his voice. It was unmoved and sweet, like a bird singing on the branch above a hanged man. Now Psyche goes out to exile. Now she must hunger and thirst and tread hard roads. Those against whom I cannot fight must do their will upon her. You, woman, shall know yourself and your work. You also shall be Psyche. The voice and the light both ended together as if one knife had cut them short. Then, in the silence, I heard again the noise of the weeping. I have never heard weeping like that before or after, not from a child, nor a man wounded in the palm, nor a tortured man, nor a girl dragged off to slavery from a taken city. If you heard the woman you most hate in the world weep so, you would go to comfort her. You would fight your way through fire and spears to reach her. And I knew who wept, and what had been done to her, and who had done it. I rose to go to her, but already the weeping was further away. She went wailing far off to my right, down to the end of the valley, where I had never been, where doubtless it fell away or dropped in sheer cliffs toward the south. And I could not cross the stream. It would not even drown me. It would bruise and freeze and bemire me. But somehow, whenever I grasped a rock, earth was of no use now, for great slabs of the bank were slipping into the current every moment. I found I was still on this side. Sometimes I could not even find the river. I was so bewildered in the dark, and all the ground was now little better than a swamp, so that pools and new-formed brooks lured me now this way, now that. I cannot remember more of that night. When day began to break, I could see what the god's anger had done to the valley. It was all bare rock, raw earth, and foul water. Trees, bushes, sheep, and here and there a deer floated in it. If I could have crossed the first river in the night, it would not have profited me. I would only have reached the narrow bank of mud between it and the next. 
Even now, I could not help calling out Psyche's name, calling till my voice was gone, but I knew it was foolishness. I had heard her leaving the valley. She had already gone into exile, which the god foretold. She had begun to wander, weeping, from land to land, weeping for her lover. Not, I mustn't so cheat myself, for me. I went and found Graham, a wet, shivering wretch he was, who gave one scared glance at my bandaged arm and no more, and asked no questions. We ate food from the saddlebags and began our journey. The weather was fair enough. I looked on the things about me with a new eye. Now that I had proved for certain that the gods are, and that they hated me, it seemed that I had nothing to do but wait for my punishment. I wondered on which dangerous edge the horse would slip and fling us down a few hundred feet into a gully, or what tree would drop a branch on my neck as we rode under it, or whether my wound would corrupt and I should die that way. Often, remembering that it is sometimes the god's way to turn us into beasts, I put my hand up under my veil to see if I could feel a cat's fur or a dog's muzzle or hog's tusks beginning to grow there. Yet with it all, I was not afraid. Nevertheless, it is a strange yet somehow a quiet, steady thing to look around on earth and grass and sky and say in one's heart to each, You are all my enemies now. None of you will ever do me good again. I see now only executioners. But I thought it most likely those words, you also shall be Psyche, meant that if she went into exile and wandering, I must do the same. And this, I had thought before, might very easily come about if the men of Glom had no will to be ruled by a woman. But the god had been wide of the mark, so then they don't know all things. If he thought he could grieve me by making my punishment the same as Psyche's, if I could have borne hers as well as my own, but... Next best was to share. And with this I felt a sort of hard and cheerless strength rising in me. I would make a good beggar woman. I was ugly, and Bardia had taught me how to fight. Bardia. That set me thinking how much of my story I would tell him. Then, how much I would tell the fox. I had not thought of this at all. Chapter 16 I crept in by the back parts of the palace and soon learned that my father had not yet come home from the hunting, but I went as soft and slinking to my place as if he had. When it became clear to my own mind, it did not at first, that I was hiding now not from the king but from the fox, it was a trouble to me. Always before he had been my refuge and comforter. Pooby cried over my wound, and when she had the bandage off, that part was bad, laid good dressings on it. That was hardly done, and I was eating, hungrily enough, when the fox came. Daughter, daughter, he said, praise the gods who have sent you back. I have been in pain for you all day. Where have you been? To the mountain, grandfather, said I, keeping my left arm out of sight. This was the first of my difficulties. I could not tell him of the self-wounded. I knew, now I saw him, I had not thought of it before, that he would rebuke me for putting that kind of force upon Psyche. One of his maxims was that... If we cannot persuade our friends by reasons, we must be content, quote, and not bring a mercenary armed army to our aid, unquote. He meant passions. Oh, child, that was sudden, he said. I thought we parted that night to talk it over again in the morning. We parted to let you sleep, said I. The words came fiercely without my will and in my father's own voice. Then I was ashamed. So, that's my sin, said the fox, smiling sadly. Well, lady, you have punished it, but what's your news? 
Would Psyche hear you? I said nothing to that question, but told him of the storm and the flood, and how the mountain, that mountain valley was now a mere swamp, and how I had tried to cross the stream and could not, and how I heard Psyche go weeping away on the south side of it and out of gloom altogether. There was no use in telling him about the god. He would have thought I would have been mad or dreaming. Do you mean, child, you never came to speech with her at all? said the fox, looking very haggard. Yes, I said, we did talk a little earlier. Child, what's wrong? Was there a quarrel? What passed between you? This was harder to answer. In the end, when he questioned me closely, I told him about my plan of the lamp. Daughter, daughter, cried the fox, what demon put a device in your thoughts, such a device in your thoughts? What did you hope to do? Would not the villain by her side, he, a hunted man and outlaw, be certain to wake? And what would he do but snatch her up and drag her away to some other lair, unless he stabbed her to the heart for fear she'd betray him to his pursuers? Why, the light alone would convince him she'd betrayed him already. How if it were a wound that made her weep? Oh, if you'd only taken counsel. I could say nothing, for now I wondered why indeed I had not thought of any of these things, and whether if I never at all believed her lover was a mountainy man. The fox stared at me, wondering more and more. I saw in my silence. At last he said, Did you find it easy to make her do this? No, said I. I had taken off while I ate the veil I had worn all day. Now I greatly wished I had it on. And how did you persuade her, he asked. This was the worst of all. I could not tell him what I had really done, nor much of what I had said. For when I told Psyche that he and Barty were both agreed about her lover, I meant what was very true. Both agreed it was some shameful or dreadful thing. But if I said this to the fox, he would say that Bardia's belief and his were sheer contraries, the one all old wives' tale, tales, and the other plain workaday probabilities. He would make it seem that I had lied. I could never make him understand how different it had looked on the mountain. I, I spoke with her, I said at last. I persuaded her. He looked long and searchingly at me, but never so tenderly since those old days when he used to sing, The Moon's Gone Down, I on his knee. Well, you have a secret from me, he said in the end. No, don't turn away from me. Did you think I would try to press her conjure it out of you? Never that. Friends must be free. My tormenting you to find it would build a worse barrier between us than your hiding it. Some day, but you must obey the God within you, not the God within me. There, do not weep. I shall not cease to love you if you had a hundred secrets. I am an old tree and my best branches were lopped off me the day I became a slave. You and Psyche were all that remained. Now, alas, poor Psyche, I see no way to her now, but I'll not lose you. He embraced me. I bit my lip not to scream when his arm touched the wound and went away. I had hardly ever before been glad of his going, but I thought, too, how much kinder he was than Psyche. I never told Barty the story of that night at all, I made one resolve before I slept, which, though it seems a small matter, made much difference to me in the years that followed. Hitherto, like all my journey countrywomen, I had gone barefaced. On those two journeys up the mountain I had worn a veil because I wished to be secret, and I, I now determined that I would go always veiled. I have kept this rule, within doors and without, ever since. It is a sort of treaty made with my ugliness." There had been a time in childhood when I didn't yet know I was ugly. 
Then there was a time, for this book I must hide none of my shames or follies, when I believed, as girls do, and as Bata was always telling me, that I could make it more tolerable by this or that done to my clothes or my hair. Now I chose to be veiled. The fox that night was the last man who ever saw my face, and not many women have seen it either. My arm healed well, and so all wounds have done in my body, and when the king returned, about seven days later, I no longer pretended to be ill. He came home very drunk, for there had been as much feasting as hunting on that party, and very out of humor, for they had killed only two lions, and he had killed neither, and a favorite dog had been ripped up. A few days later he sent for the fox and me again to the pillar room. As soon as he saw me veiled, he shouted, Now, girl, what's this? Hung your curtains up, eh? Were you afraid we'd be dazzled by your beauty? Take off that frippery. It was then I first found what that night on the mountain had done for me. No one who had seen and heard the god could much fear this roaring old king. It's hard if I'm to be scolded both for my face and for hiding it, said I, putting no hand to the veil. Come here, he said, not at all allowed this time. I went up and stood so close to his chair that my knees almost touched his, still as a stone. To see his face while he could not see mine seemed to give me a kind of power. He was working himself into one of those white rages. Do you begin to set your wits against mine? He said almost in a whisper. Yes, said I, no louder than he, but very clearly. I had not known a moment before that what I would do or say, that one little word came out of itself. He stared at me while you could count seven, and I half thought he might stab me dead. Then he shrugged and snarled out, Oh, you're like all women. Talk, talk, talk. You'd talk the moon out of the sky if a man listened to you. Here, Fox, are those lies you've been writing all ready for her to copy? He never struck me, and I never feared him again. From that day I never gave back an inch before him. Rather, I pressed on so well that I told him not long after how impossible it was that I and the fox should guard Redival if we were to work for him in the pillar room. He growled and cursed, yet henceforth he made Bata her jailer. Bata had grown very familiar with him of late and spent many hours in the bedchamber. Not, I suppose, that he had her to his bed, even in the best of her days, she had scarcely been called what he called savory, but she tattled and whispered and flattered him and stirred his possets, for he began to show his years. She was equally thick, for the most part, with Redival, and but those two were a pair who could be ready to scratch each other's eyes out one moment and snuggling up for gossip and body the next. This and all other things that were happening in the palace mattered to me not at all. I was like a condemned man waiting for his executioner, for... I believed that some sudden stroke of the gods would fall on me very soon. But as day came after day and nothing happened, I began to see, at first very unwillingly, that I be, might be doomed to live, and even to live an unchanged life some while longer. <coughs> when I understood this, I went to Psyche's room alone and put everything in it as it had been before all our sorrows began. I found some verses in Greek which seemed to be a hymn to the god of the mountain. These I burned. I did not choose that any of that part of her should remain. Even the clothes that she had worn in the last year I burned also. 
but those she had worn earlier, and especially what were left of those she wore in childhood, and any jewels she had loved as a child, I hung in their proper places. I wished all to be so ordered that if she could come back, she would find it all as it had been when she was still happy and still mine. Then I locked the door and put a seal on it. And as well as I could, I locked a door in my mind. Unless I were to go mad, I must put away all thoughts of her, save those that went back to her first happy years. I never spoke of her. If my women mentioned her name, I bade them be silent. If the fox mentioned it, I was silent myself and led him to other things. There was less comfort than of old in being with the fox. Yet I questioned him much about what he called the physical parts of philosophy, about the seminal fire and how soul arises from blood and the periods of the universe, and also about plants and animals and the position, soils, airs, and governments of cities. I wanted hard now, I, I wanted hard things now, and to pile up knowledge. As soon as my wound was well enough, I returned very diligently to my fencing lessons with Bardia. I did it even before my left arm could bear a shield, for he said that fighting without shields was also a skill that ought to be learned. He said, and I now know it was true, that I made very good progress. My aim was to build up more and more that strength, hard and joyless, which had come to me when I heard the God's sentence, by learning, fighting, and laboring, to drive all the woman out of me. Sometimes, at night, if the wind howled or the rain fell, there would leap upon me, like water from a bursting dam, a great and anguished wonder whether Psyche was alive and whether she, where she was on such a night, and whether hard wives of peasants were turning her cold and famished from their door. But then, after an hour or so of weeping and writhing and calling out upon the gods, I would set to and rebuild the dam. Soon Bardia was teaching me to ride on horseback as well as to fence with the sword. He used me and talked to me more and more like a man, and this both grieved and pleased me. So things went on till the midwinter, which is a great feast in our country. On the day after it, the king came home from some revels he had been at in a lord's house, about three hours after noon, and in mounting the steps that go up into the porch, he fell. It was so cold that day that the water the houseboys had used for scouring the steps had frozen on them. He fell with his right leg under him across the edge of a step, and when men ran to help him, he roared out with pain and was ready to set his teeth in the hands of anyone who touched him. Next minute he was cursing them for leaving him to lie there and freeze. As soon as I came, I nodded to the slaves to lift him up and carry him in, whatever he said or did. We got him to his bed in great agony, and had the barber to him, who said, as we all guessed, that his thigh was broken. But I've no skill to set it, lady, even if the king would let my fingers near it. I sent a messenger over to the house of Ungut to the second priest, who had the name of a good surgeon. Before he came, the king had filled himself up with enough strong wine to throw a sound man into a fever, and as soon as the second priest got his clothes out of the way and began handling the leg, he started screaming like a beast and tried to pluck out his dagger. Then Barty and I whispered to one another, and we got in six of the guards and held the king down. Between his screams, he kept on pointing at me with his eyes. They had his hands fast and crying out, Take her away. Take her away, that one with the veil. Don't let her torture me. I know who she is. I know. He had no sleep that night or the day and night after. On top of the pain from his leg, he coughed as if his chest would burst. And whenever our backs were turned, Bada would be taking him in more wine. 
I was not much in the bedchamber myself, for the sight of him made him frantic. He kept on saying he knew who I was for all my veil. Master, said the fox, it is only the Princess Orwell, your daughter. Aye, so she tells you, the king would say, but I know better. Wasn't she using red-hot iron on my leg all night? I know who she is. Aye, aye, guards, Bardia, Orwell, Bata, take her away. On the third night, the second priest and Bardia and the fox and I all stood just outside his door and talked in whispers. The second priest's name was Arnon. He was a dark man, no older than I, smooth-cheeked as a eunuch, which he cannot have been, for though eunuch Ungit has eunuchs, only a weaponed man can hold the full priesthood. It's likely, said Arnon, that this will end at the king's death. So, thought I, this is how it will begin. There'll be a new world in Glome, and if I get off with my life, I shall be driven out. I, too, shall be a psyche. I think the same, said the fox, and it comes at a ticklish time. There is much business before us. More than you think, Lysias, said Arnon. I had never heard the fox called, called by his real name before. The house of Ungit is the very, in the very same plight as the king's house. What do you mean, Arnon, said Bardia? The priest is dying at last. If I have any skill, he'll not last five days. And you to succeed him, said Bardia. The priest bowed his head. Unless the king forbids, added the fox. This was a good law in Glom. It's very necessary, said Bardia, that Ungut and the palace should be of one mind at such a moment. There are those who see their chance of setting Glom by the ears otherwise. Yes, very necessary, said Arnam. No one will rise against us both. It's our good fortune, said Bardia, that there's no cause of quarrel between the queen and Ungut. The queen, said Arnhem. The queen, said Bardia and the fox, now both together. If only the princess were married now, said Arnhem, bowing very courteously, a woman cannot lead the armies of Glome in war. This queen can, said Bardia, and the way he thrust out his lower jaw made him seem a whole army himself. I saw Arnhem looking at me hard, and I think my veil served me better than the boldest countenance in the world, maybe better than beauty would have done. There is only one difference between Ungit and the king's house, he said, and that concerns the crumbles. But for the king's sickness and the priests, I would have, I would have been here before now to speak of it. I knew all about this and saw now where we were. The crumbles was good land on the far side of the river, and it had been a cat and dog quarrel ever since I started working for my father as to whether it belonged or how much of it belonged to the king or to Ungit. I had always thought, little cause that I had to love Ungit, that it should belong to her house, which was indeed poorly provided for the charge of continual sacrifices. And I thought, too, that if once Ungit were reasonably furnished with land, the priest could be stopped from wringing so much out of the common people by way of gifts. The king still lives, said I. I had not spoken before, and my voice surprised them all. But because of his sickness, I am now the king's mouth. It is his wish to give the crumbles to Ungit free and forever, and that the covenant be cut in stone on one condition. Bardia and the fox looked at me with wonder, but Arnon said, What is that, lady? That Ungit's guards be henceforth under the captain of the king's guard, and chosen by the king or his successor, and under his obedience. And paid for by the king, or his successors too, said Arnam, quick as lightning. I had not thought of this stroke, but I judged my resolute answer better than the wisest pondering. 
That, said I, must be according to the hours of duty they spend at Ungut's house and here. You drive, that is, the king drives, a hard bargain, lady, said the priest, but I knew he would take it, for I knew that Ungut had more need of good land than of spears. Also, it would be hard for Arnam to succeed to the priesthood if the palace was against him. Then my father began roaring out from within, and the priest went back to him. Well done, daughter, whispered the fox. Long live the queen, whispered Bardia. Then they both followed Arnhem. I stood outside in the great hall, which was empty, and the fire low, and, but it was, strange, it was as strange a moment as any in my life. To be a queen, that would not sweeten the bitter water against which I had been building the dam in my soul. It might strengthen the dam, though. Then, as a quite different thing, came the thought that my father would be dead. That struck me dizzy. The largeness of a world in which he was not. The clear light of a sky in which that cloud would no longer hang. Freedom. I drew in a long breath, one way, the sweetest I had ever drawn. I came near to forgetting my great central sorrow. But only for a moment. It was very still, and most of the house was in bed. I thought I heard a sound of weeping, a girl's weeping, the sound for which, always, with or without my will, I was listening. It seemed to come from without, from behind the palace, instantly. Crowns and policies and my father were, a distant, were distantly a thousand leagues from my mind. In a torture of hope, I went swiftly to the other end of the hall, and then out by the little door between the dairy and the guard's quarters. The moon was shining, but the air was not so still as I thought. And where was she? Was the weeping? Then I thought I heard it again. Psyche, I called. Istra, Psyche. I went to the sound. Now I was less sure what it was. I remembered that, that when the chains of the well swung a little, and there had been a breeze enough to sway them just now, they could make a noise something like that. Oh, the cheat of it, the bitterness. I stood and listened. There was no more weeping, but something was moving somewhere. Then I saw a cloaked form dart across a patch of moonlight and bury itself in some bushes. I was after it, quick as I could. Next moment I plunged my hand in among the branches. Another hand met it. Softly, sweetheart, said a voice, take me to the king's threshold. It was a wholly strange voice, and a man's. Chapter 17 Who are you, said I, wrenching my hand free and leaping back as if I had touched a snake. Come out and show yourself. My thought was that it must be a lover of Redivals, and that Bata was playing bawd as well as jailer. A slender, tall man slept, stepped out. A suppliant, he said, but with merriment in his voice that did not sound like supplication, and one who never let a pretty girl go without a kiss. He'd have had an arm around my neck in a moment if I had not avoided him. Then he saw my dagger point twinkle in the moonlight and laughed. You've good eyes if you can see beauty in this face, said I, turning turning it on him to make sure he saw the blank wall of the veil. Only good ears, sister, he said he. I'll bet a girl with a voice like yours is beautiful. The whole adventure was, for a woman such as I, so unusual that I almost had a fool's wish to lengthen it. The very world was strange that night, but I came to my senses. Who are you? I said. Tell me quick, or I'll call the guards. I'm no thief, pretty one, said he. Though I confess you caught me slinking in a thief's fashion, I thought there might be already some kindred of my own in your garden whom I had no mind to meet. I am a suppliant to the king. Can you bring me to him? He let me hear a couple of coins jingle in his hand. 
Unless the king's health mends suddenly, I am the queen, said I. He gave a low whistle and laughed. If that's so, queen, he said, I've played the fool to admiration. Then it's your suppliant I am, suppli suppliant for a few nights. It might be only one. Logic and protection. I am Trunia of Fars. The news struck me almost stupid. I have written before how this prince was at war with his brother Argan and the old father, their king, old, the old king, their father. Defeated then, said I. Beaten in a cavalry skirmish, he said, and had to ride for it, which would have been a little odds, but that I missed my way and blundered into gloom. And then my horse went lame, not three miles back. The worst of it is, my brother's strength lies all along the border. If you can hide me for a day or so, his messengers will be at your door by daybreak, no doubt, so that I can get into Esser and so round to my main army in Fars. I'll soon show him and all the world whether I'm defeated. This is all very well, Prince, said I, but if we receive you as suppliant, we must, it, by all law, defend you. I'm not so young a queen as to think I can go to war with Fars at this time. It's a cold night to lie out, he said. You'd be very welcome if you're not a suppliant, Prince, but in that character you're too dangerous. I can give you lodging only as a prisoner. Prisoner, said he, then, Queen, good night. He darted away as if he were not weary at all, though I had heard weariness in his voice and ran as one who was used to it. But that flight was his undoing. I could have told him where the old millstone lay. He fell, sprawling, made to leap up again with wonderful quickness, then gave a sharp hiss of pain, struggled, cursed, and was still. Sprang, if not broken, he said, plague on the god that invented man's ankle. Well, you may call your spears, queen. Prisoner it is. And that prison leads to my brother's hangman. We'll save you if we can, said I. If we can do it in any way without going full war against Fars, we'll do it. The guards' quarters were on that side of the house, as I have said, and it was easy enough to go within calling distance of the men and yet keep my eye on the prince. As soon as I heard them turning out, I said, Pull your hood over your face. The fewer who know my prisoner's name, the freer my hands will be. They got him up and brought him hobbling to the hall and put him on the settle by the hearth, and I called for wine and victuals to be brought to him and for the barber to bind up his ankle. Then I went into the benchamber. Arnon had gone. The king was worse, his face a darker red, his breathing hoarse. It seemed he could not speak, but I wondered, as his eyes wandered from one to another of us three, what he thought and felt. "'Where have you been, daughter?' said the fox. "'Here's terribly weighty news. A post has just ridden in to tell us that Argan of Fars, with three, maybe four score of horse, has crossed the border and now lies but ten miles away. He gives out that he is seeking his brother Trunia.' How quickly we learned to queen or king it. Yesterday, I should have cared little how many aliens and arms crossed our borders. Tonight, as it was as if someone had struck me in the face. And, said Bardia, whether he really believes that we have Trunia here, or whether he's crossed the border of a crippled land only to make a cheap show of valor and mend his moldy reputation. Either way, Trunia is here, said I. Before their surprise let them speak, I made them come into the pillar room, for I found I could not bear my father's eyes upon us. The others seemed to make no account of him than a dead man. I ordered lights and fire in the tower room, Psyche's old prison, and that the prince should be taken there when he had eaten. Then we three went busily to our talking. 
On three things, we were all of one mind. First, that if Trinia weathered his present misfortune, he was likely enough to beat Argan in the end and rules Fars. The old king was in his dotage and counted for nothing. The longer the broils lasted, the more Trunia's party would probably increase, for Argan was false, cruel, and hated by many, and had, moreover, from his first battle, long before these troubles, an old slur of cowardice upon him that made him contemptible. Second, that Trunia as king of Fars would be a far better neighbor to us than Argan, especially if we had befriended him when he was lowest. But thirdly, that we were in no plight to take on war with Fars, nor even with Argan's party in Fars, the pestilence had killed too many of our young men, and we were sti we still had too, almost no corn. Then a new thought, as if from nowhere, came scalding hot into my head. Bardia, said I, what is Prince Argan worth as a swordsman? There are two better at this table, Queen. And he'd be very chary of doing anything that would revive the old story against his courage? It is to be supposed so. Then if we offered him a champion to fight against him for Trunia, pawned Trunia's head on a single combat, he'd be in a manner bound to take it up. Bardia thought for a time. Why, he said, it sounds like something out of an old song. Yet, by the gods, the longer I look at it, the better I like it. Weak though we are, he'll not want war with us while he has war at home, not if we leave him any other choice. And his hope hangs on keeping or getting his people's favor. He has none of it to spare even now, and it's an odious thing to be pursuing his brother at our gates as if he were digging out a fox. That won't have made him more loved. If, on top of it all, he refuses the, the combat, his name will stink worse still. I think your plan has life in it, Queen. This is very wise, said the fox, even if our man's killed. And we have to hand Trunia over. No man can say we've treated him ill. We save our good name and yet have no war with Fars. And if our champion kills Argan, said Bardia, then we're done the next thing to setting Trunia on the throne and earned a good friend, for all say Trunia is a right-minded man. To make it sure still, friend, said I, let our champion be one so contemptible that it would be shame beneath all shame for Argan to draw back. That's too subtle, daughter, said the fox, and hard on Trunia. We don't want our man beaten. What are you thinking of, Queen, said Bardia, teasing his moustache in the old way. We can't ask him to fight a slave, if that's what you mean. No, a woman, said I. The fox stared in bewilderment. I had never told him of my exercises with the sword, partly because I had a tenderness about mentioning Bardia to him at all, for to hear Bardia called fool or barbarian angered me. Bardia called the fox Greekling and word, word weaver in return, but that never fretted me in the same way. A woman, said the fox, are you mad? Or are, am I mad, or are you? And now a great smile that would do any hard good to see it broke over Bardia's face, but he shook his head. I've played chess too long to hazard my queen, he said. What, Bardia, said I, steadying my voice as best I could. Were you only flattering when you said I was a better swordsman than Argan? Not so. I'd lay money on you if it came to the wager, but there's always luck as well as skill in these things. And courage, too, you'd say? I've no fear of you for that, Queen. I have no idea what you're both talking about, said the fox. The Queen wants to fight for Trunia herself, fox, said Bardia. And she could do it, too. We had scores of matches together. The gods never made anyone, man or woman, with a better natural gift for it. Oh, lady, lady, it's a thousand pities they didn't make you a man. 
He spoke it as kindly and heartily as could be, as if a man dashed a gallon of cold water in your broth and never doubted you'd like it all the better. <laughs> Monstrous, against all custom, and nature, and modesty, said the fox. On such matters he was a true Greek. He still thought it barbarous and scandalous that the women in our land go bareface. I had sometimes said to him, when we were married, that I ought to call him not grandfather, but grandam. That was another reason why I had never told him of the fencing. Nature's hand slept when she made me anyway, said I. If I am to be hard-featured as a man, why shouldn't I fight like a man, too? Daughter, daughter, said the fox, in mercy to me, if for nothing else, put this horrible thought out of your head. The plan of a champion in a combat was good. How would this folly make it better? It makes it far better, said I. Do you think I'm so simple as to fancy I'm safe on my father's throne yet? Arnam is with me. Bardia is with me. But what of the nobles and the people? I know nothing of them, nor they of me. If either of the king's wives had lived, I suppose I might have known the lord's wives and daughters. My father never let us see them, much less the lords themselves. I have no friends. Is this, is this combat not the very thing to catch their fancy? Won't they like a woman for their ruler better if she has fought for Gloam and killed her man? Oh, for that, said Barty, it'd be incomparable. There'd be no one but you in their mouths and hearts for a twelve-month. Child, child, said the foxes, eyes full of tears. It's your life, your life. First my home and freedom gone, then Psyche, now you. Will you not leave one leaf on this old tree? I could see right into his heart, for I knew he now implored me with the same anguish I had felt when I implored Psyche. The tears that stood in my eyes behind my veil were tears of pity for myself more than for him. I did not let them fall. <coughs> my mind's made up, I said, and none of you can think of a better way out of our dangers. Do we know where Argon lies, Bardia? At the Red Ford, the post said. Then let our herald be sent at once. The fields between the city and the Senate will be the place of the combat, the time the third day from now. The terms these. If I fall, we deliver Trunia to him and condone his unlawful entering into our lands. If he falls, Trunia is a free man and has a safe conduct to go over the border to his own people in Fars or where he will. Either way, all the aliens to be out of the land of Gloam in two days. They both stared and said nothing. I'll go to bed now, said I. See to the sending, Bardia, and then to bed yourself. A good night to you both. I knew from Bardia's face that he would obey, though he could not bring himself to assent in words. I turned quickly away and went to my own room. To be alone there and in the sonnets like coming suddenly under the lee of a wall on a wild, windy day, so that one can breathe and collect oneself again. Ever since Arnam had said hours ago that the king was dying, there seemed to have been another woman acting and speaking in my place. Call her the queen. But Orwell was someone different, and now I was Orwell again. I wondered if this was how all princes felt. I looked back on the things the queen had done and wondered at them. Did that queen truly think she could kill Argan? I, Orwell, as I now saw, did not believe it. I was not even sure I, that I could fight him. I had never used sharps before. Nothing hung on my sham battles but the hope of pleasing my teacher, not that that was a small thing to be either. How would it be if, when the day came and the trumpets had blown and the swords were out, my courage failed me? I'd be the mockery of the whole world. I could see the shamed face, shamed look on the fox's face and on Bardia's. I could hear them saying, 
and yet how bravely her sister went to the offering. How strange that she, who was so meek and gentle, should have been the brave one after all. And so, she would be far above me in everything, in courage as well as in beauty, and in those eyes which the gods favored with the sight of things invisible, and even in strength I remembered her grip when we had wrestled. She shall not, I said with my whole psyche, my whole soul, psyche, she's never had a sword in her hand in her life, never done a man's work in the pillar room, never understood, hardly heard of affairs of state, a girl's life, a child's life. I asked myself suddenly what I was thinking. Can it be my sickness coming back, I thought. For it began to be like those vile dreams I'd had in my ravings when the cruel gods put into my mind the horrible mad fancy that it was Psyche who was my enemy. Psyche, my enemy? <coughs> she, my child, the very heart of my heart, whom I had wronged and ruined, for whose sake the gods were right to kill me? And now I saw my challenge to the prince quite differently. Of course he would kill me. He was the god's executioner. And this would be the best thing in the world, far better than some of the dooms I had looked for. All my life must now be a sandy waste. Who could have dared to hope it would be so short? And this accorded so well with all my daily thoughts since the, the god's sentence that I now wondered how I could have forgotten that sandy waste for the past few hours. It was queenship that had done it, all those decisions to make, coming pell-mell upon me without a breathing space, and so much hanging on each, all the speed, skill, peril, and dash of the game. I resolved that for the two days left to me, I'd queen it with the best of them, and if by any chance Argan didn't kill me, I'd queen it as long as the gods let me. It was not pride, the glitter of the name. That moved me, or not much. I was taking to queenship as a stricken man takes to the wine pot, or as a stricken woman, if she had beauty, might take to lovers. It was an art that left you no time to mope. If Oroo could vanish altogether into the queen, the gods would almost be cheated. But had Arnam said my father was dying? No, not quite that. I rose up and went back to his bedchamber without a taper, feeling my way along the walls, for I would have been ashamed if anyone saw me. There were still lights in the bedchamber. They had left Bata with, to be with him. She sat in her, his own chair, close to the fire, sleeping the noisy sleep of a sodden old woman. I went over to the bedside. He was seemingly wide awake. Whether the noises he was making were an attempt at speech, who knows? But the look in his eyes when he saw me was not to be mistaken. It was terror. Did he know me and think I came to murder him? Did he think I was Psyche, come back from the Deadlands to bring him down there? Some will say, perhaps the gods will say, that if I had murdered him indeed, I should have been no less impious than I was. For as he looked at me with fear, so I looked at him, but all my fear was lest he should live. What do the gods expect of us? My deliverance was now so near. A prisoner may come to bear his dungeon with patience, but if he has almost escaped, tasted his first draft of the free air, to be retaken then, to go back to the clanking of that fetter, the smell of that straw. I looked again at his face, terrified, idiotic, almost an animal's face. A thought of comfort came to me. Even if he lives, he will never have his mind again. I went back and slept soundly. Okay, so things have happened. 
Um, one small historic problem. Barty is talking about chess moves, and chess is nowhere near being a thing. <laughs> Maybe almost a thousand years later into Europe, so. Um, there was uh, uh, a, a, a slight uh, talks about Bardia graveled um, it just means perplexed, puzzled um, um and uh, there was um, this phrase of weeping for her lover. One seventy-five thereabouts. Um, she had begun to wander, weeping from land to land, weeping for her lover. Not that I mustn't cheat myself, so cheat myself for me. But the phrase weeping for my love is like the weeping for Tammuz. Um, um, it's a slight, possibly a reference. What about Bible. Song of Solomon? Yeah, we, that, that would be the same sort of thing. She goes out searching around. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I hadn't thought of that. That's good. Um, yeah, Tammuz was a, de a deity who... Um, died, uh, uh, what's his other name, Adonis, I think Adonis is the same, but the phrase in scripture is the weeping for Tammuz on the plains of uh, Megiddo, where we get the word Armageddon from. Um, uh, but there was other things quite so historic, um, So, um, what do we got here? We got, uh, in the actual myth, part of the reason that Cupid doesn't want Psyche to know is he doesn't want to be found out. His mom, Venus, had wanted him in her jealousy over Psyche's beauty and Psyche's gaining of veneration, to make her fall in love with a base person. Cupid sees Psyche, falls in love with her, so he creates a palace where he can hide Psyche and have her as his wife, but this, uh, the discovery of identity reveals that Psyche is there, and he's got to hand Psyche over to Venus, and Venus has this these punishments that she has set for Psyche, which occur later in the story. Um, all sorts of uh, trials and tribulations. Um, so that's why, that's why there's this secrecy in the gods about who Cupid is, the god of the mountain, um, and what gives with it's not It's not Cupid's punishment so much as his mom's. You know how moms are. Okay, what did anything pop up to you about uh, the developments in the story?
thought it was interesting to see the, the progression of the sister's character after she does what she does to Psyche to see how she goes through her own thought process. Mm -hmm. She seems to be placing before you both analyses, though she chooses her disobedience to favor, you know, that she says, did I just drive her into, you know, exile? Was I wrong? I don't think I'm going to, she's going to hold to the, the one that keeps driving her on, which you get that constantly repeated coming back to me, that, and those, those fanciful adolescent things, when I'm dead, she'll come weeping over my tomb, or or when she finds out that her lover is a is a monster, she's going to rush down to me at the river, and I'll help her across the river. It's all very, it's all very oral centered. Um, um, but you get more of that uh, face business going on. Um, he she looks at Psyche, and she's bright face, and again and. And or and Psyche sees her as this kind of uh, uh, storm cloud face, and then you get the um, the slow introduction of the veil on the two trips, and then the commitment to the veil, mm -hmm. um, and the strength that is in the veil. It's it's an interesting aspect because of what is veiled to Oroal about this. She doesn't, she's, she's making this complaint against the gods. What's veiled to her, the Psyche knows what the, the gods are going to do good, but Orwell says she's blind to that about them, but she's feeling this position of power as she gets veiled. Um, she's able to face the king and tell him, yeah, I'm going to take you on now. Um, but those that's sort of a constant drumbeat rather than Anything else? What What else do you guys know? I noticed that she makes a shrine of Psyche's room like one of the characters in The Great Divorce. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the mother that lost her son. Son, you can't... And, yeah, it's... Uh, but, um, burns all the clothes and has everything hung in the proper places. Wish that all to be so ordered that if she could come back, she would find all as it had been when she was still happy and still mine. <laughs> then I locked the door and put a seal on it. And I locked the door Sleepy. in my mind. <laughs> That's sort of the odd day. She, she has it contained in a room, and then in her own thinking, she won't let anybody talk of her. Yeah. Everything gets shut down, except for a few, and building a dam against it. It'll break out sometimes, but she gets the dam being made stronger, and then she speaks of being a queen as making the dam stronger. Um. <laughs> um, going back to um, kind of the, the slow introduction of or Orwell's Veil, it reminded me of when um, when Pharaoh keeps getting you know, all the plagues sent to him, and each time he just hardens his heart. Um, and, 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 you know, he thinks he's, like, you know, gaining some power by doing that, um, like, kind of hardening himself against who God is, and, mm -hmm. 
but but really, it's just like putting another barrier between mm-hmm. him and God. And I feel like um, Psyche's, I'm uh, not Psyche, Oral's kind of doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. There was. Uh The the uh, Emily's what's what's her name that girl there, that's Elizabeth. Um, <laughs> the conversation between Orwell and Psyche, and Psyche throughout this comes across even in her she's trapped in a disobedience. That's at least in terms of her situation. Either her sister's going to kill herself and try to kill me, and she's not doesn't care about her own life but her sister's life. And obeying her husband. I mean, it's the the shame of disobeying her husband is is so pronounced, um, and the complete trust in her husband and trust in her husband's love more than she trusts Orwell's any longer. Um, there's there's such a uh, such a maturity of of conclusion. C- yeah, c- conclusions, and then she says that. Her love for her husband had made her able to love everyone else, you know, everyone better. And, and Orwell's viewing it as a zero-sum game. You loved me. If you love your husband, you love me less. And, and Psyche's going, no, you don't seem to understand what right love is doing. It's making... Uh, sort of a bottomless capability of loving. You can love all the loves in your life the way you ought to, because they really aren't. It's but, only when one turns it against love. But where Psyche goes wrong, um, and, you know, it's a good thing to point out, just to additional proof that this is not an allegory, but Psyche does go wrong. She does disobey, mm-hmm. because she was... She succumbed to the manipulation, mm-hmm. um, in which case she's more of a parallel with Eve, and Orwell's like you know snake in the garden, but Orwell starts off trying to be reasonable. Psyche's too smart for that. She she knows like no like you don't know my my husband. Um, I know my husband, so I'm gonna remain obedient. Orwell then has to resort to these dramatic um, emotional. emotional outbursts of, uh, you know, see what you're doing to me as, as you know, you throw the dagger into your own arm. Uh, and Psyche was manipulated by that. Mm-hmm. Um, so she is simple. She's still simple. She knows that she's simple, and it was her, her simplicity that led her to disobey. Um, you have you have a something similar, Greg? Go ahead, Greg. No, I was going to say it's also something in her simplicity that makes her see clearly that might have held her from not doing that too. So you know, I mean, she. I think there's a certain humility in her simplicity. Uh, she's, you know. Oh yeah, I, I don't know what thoughts. <coughs> Uh, what did she say? She looked at, <clears throat> had a sorrow that didn't look humble. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that was a phrase. She was she was looking at Orwell with a sorrow that wasn't humble. 
Mm. I saw she was sure that her, her her position was in the right. In many ways, she tracks with the green lady in Paralandra, who, when the unman is trying to tempt her, and has this constant drumbeat of temptation. And in many ways, when she says, you've taken these things, these passions, and you've turned them into tools, she is the word, you know, policy, you know, Machiavellian efforts to bend the situation. And Ransom says the same thing about the unman and says his arguments weren't because the unman valued reason. He used them as tools. Just as tools as far as they would go. Because Orwell didn't want to listen to reason that Psyche offered. It was subtleties when Psyche was speaking. You're just speaking in subtleties or or it's all, uh, um, you know, uh, dream world, but I'm the only one speaking reason, and uh, but she's using it only as a point of leverage. It tracks with other, uh, other attempted temptations. Now, when you sort of so feel for Psyche in that Ransom has to step in at a certain point with the unman and say that... Um, uh, how will she ever stand in this? And then he goes, well, she's already stood enough. i got to kill this guy. You know, it's, it's, the, that battle has gone on. She's been faithful. You can see Psyche being faithful to a point. There's no one like Ransom standing there to just deck Psyche, uh, deck Orwell. Um, uh, there's no deliverance, uh, um, um, but I think she stands to the point that at least everyone would expect you to stand, and only then her giving in is, I'm going to give in because of your life, not because I believe your argument, and two, I'm going to tell my husband. You know, it's, it's going to be an open, not secret uh, thing. It's going to be, I'm not going to hide this from him. Um, Tragically, the, the problems were bigger than she imagined. But. And she's also resting on his, for, on his forgiveness. Because I think she's like becoming um, his wife. She's, you know, grown into, into more love. And mm -hmm. so maybe she thinks like that the gods, you know, must be, you know, big and grandiose in that same way that she has kind of learned to be. And she 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 hopes or presumes on his forgiveness, mm -hmm. but then she has a a fear also mentioned. I will lose. I could lose everything. This is that is happiness. So she, I think she she, she's hoping for the forgiveness. That's but she also knows the other could happen too. Um, um, uh, you also have the conflict on the part of the argument that is the sexuality argument. Psyche knows her husband in a biblical oh, way. And, and you a virgin. And you, you a virgin. I can't talk to you about these things. And then Orwell gets really annoyed and she puts it all with Bata, Redival, the king's doxies, um, the, the temple girls. That's what sexuality is to her. And what you call it, a sty, like a pig yes, sty. Um, and, um, yeah, that's sour grapes. Um, and it, 
so the outside, the, the virgin's presumption is, how could you know your lover's nature in that, in that act, you know? And any person who's been in that act goes, I know pretty well it's not a serpentine monster, you know, <laughs> that it's not some scaly beastie or the undead with gaping holes and a zombie face or something like that. So it's, and it sort of bemuses Psyche that she's unable to understand that she knows her husband. Um, 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 Let's see. What about the god showing up? That was a that was, there was a great line in there when the god shows up, and what was it? My terror was the salute that mortal flesh mm -hmm. gives to immortal things. That's a a great line because there's nothing. Is this brightly lit, electrostatic? You know, brilliance. You know. Um, uh, like staring into a LED flashlight. Couldn't even tell what size he was. Yeah. And he's not, doesn't look angry, doesn't sound angry, but it's all rejection. You know, I think, I think Lewis toyed somewhat with that, with great divorce, with the idea of uh, being, that hell was the sort of the ultimate sent away. The, you, your will, my will, you either come closer to me or further away from me, but this is this idea of re absolute rejection, and she gets it from Psyche, first off, and then she gets it from the god, um, but, uh, um, she takes on the belief in her error pretty straightforward, right? She goes, okay. Yeah, it's a god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now but, we know. But she, there was a moment where it's like, all the same, Shadow Brute, she, she immediately finds a, a justification that, okay, it was a god, um, but it, it's a monstrous thing, and Psyche will be, free, will be happy to be free from that. But he, he doesn't see it as a monster. It's a, it's a man, glorious beautiful and what I think she does is when the god is talking to her it's like he has her revisit all of her behavior and as if this was all what it says throw dust into my own eyes about that, that I always had known it was true uh, but then she blames then she says the gods must have the power if they have the power to change the past, because that's what she was claiming this vision of her in the past was, is is a change. And then how could they don't change the past for our... For good. For good, yeah. for our good. And so no matter what, the gods, she now knows the gods are there. She's still blaming the gods. The gods can't do anything right. Any stick is good enough to hit the gods with because... Orwell's love for herself or her demand that Psyche love her um, is sort of ultimate. Um, but she takes on this resignation to be dying on the way back, 
dying in the next few days, dying in the next few months. Uh, we hear at the end, it's, well, I'm going to get killed in this fight. Yeah. Taking it on. Lewis talks about that in uh, uh, in his essay, De Futilitate, where uh, about the con one of the responses to the absolute futility of the world, um, uh, you can simply take it. You can become a consistent pessimist, as Lord Russell was when he wrote The Worship of a Free Man, and base your whole life on what he called, quote, a firm foundation of unshakable despair. <laughs> you will feed yourself on the Wessex novels in The Shropshire Lad and Lucretius, and a very manly, impressive figure you may contrive to be. You know, that, that, that whole... She, she almost feeds in a strengthening element. She starts learning from the fox all sorts of liberal arts and sciences and everything that he knows. She's going to take in the material. She's going to become queenly. She's taken on these things, fully believing that the, 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 the gonna brick's going to drop on her. That's how she... Yeah. Yas, queen. queen it. But, but she's doing it sort of as... Um, the the what's the phrase? Uh, a firm foundation of unshakable despair. The 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 loss of psyche, the crime she committed against psyche, is this constant sorrow, and she's going to she's going to man up and stand there like a, like a powerful figure and be a powerful figure. And mm -hmm. she's and you can see almost uh, leaps and bounds of personal strength being you know uh, created in Orwell in the last few weeks of this story uh, um, it does it does make you um, it's weird after after all of the horrible things you do enjoy seeing her rise to the level of queen and um, <coughs> sort of confound the king and um, take on that cold, severe, severe reason in, in state affairs, like she's clearly a better queen than Trom was a king. Yeah, by far. And you and you start to admire her. She, she's becoming good with the sword, capable, now horse riding, um, offering herself to fight uh, for Trinia. Um, she's coming across kind of as a erotic figure to Trinia, you know? Mm -hmm. She, other than the veil and the fact she's ugly as sin, you know, and he's imagining a pretty woman. They all do behind the veil. <laughs> um, and you and you start to see her almost as uh, she's a replacement protagonist now that Psyche is driven out. We have very little ability other than we think morally we're on Psyche's side. We now find ourselves admiring Orwell's advancement, the way she takes care of things. Um mm -hmm. Um, so we have to watch that. We don't. And, and the fox is sort of, for all of his weakness about things, the way he, he was a little more distant to her, he allows her to keep secrets. He says, friends must be free. You can't presume that you've got control in your friend's life because he's your friend, she's your friend. You've got to You've, even if they're going to keep secrets from you, that's got to be their, from their demon, their their god in themselves. And he'd rather have her have a hundred secrets and still be free. Um, Fox's social philosophy is probably where he is best. 
just his ability to see relationships and see what's going on. Um, I think an awful lot of what people in Moscow, Idaho, because they won't leave well enough alone, they they become busy busybodies, mischief makers, inserting themselves to to demand something, demand information. I need to know if you don't share with me about this, or if you don't do what I want. Um, somebody I was hearing of recently, non-believer who who thinks that you don't really love unless you you support, you know, and so people are looking to change their friends or, or loved ones' opinion out of some duty that they have, like she felt, felt Psyche had a duty to be loyal to her, a duty to obey her. And keep saying, I have a husband, I have to obey him. No, you have a duty to obey me. And I think that people who step... Her. Yeah, people who step into this arena, it's like stealing your stuff. They're stepping into your being and claiming some control of your being and the decision generation in your being that they don't have. And if you fall for it, or if you try to do it, you're violating uh, something ultimate. It's like personal property. If you wouldn't walk into someone's house and lift an ashtray and walk home with it, you better not. Um, but uh, it's the same thing. You're, you're violating the area of control the other person has in themselves. He calls it the demon or the god in you. The god in, the, the god in you... Uh, the God and me, they're, they're different, coming up with different directions to you. And it has to be allowed. Uh, she was uh, grieved and pleased that Bardia saw her like a man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you women explain that to me? Just you ugly women, okay? <laughs> I think it's pro I mean, it's almost, it's almost very like juvenile in the sense of like the thing that a tomboy yeah. girl realizes when she's like in with the guys and they hang out and it's great, and then she starts getting a little older, and there's still that like it's cool. That I can like hang out with the guys and it's fun and they you know think of me as one of them, but then you start to realize that <clears throat> sometime you you'd rather not, you'd rather they see you as a as a girl. Mm -hmm. That uh, yeah, I think it's that being thought of as like a man means she's admired mm -hmm. for her strength and competence, but she would still rather be beautiful and loved as a woman. Is, is, it the, does the, is the veil such a handy bit of whiteout that your one uncontrollable flaw, we talked about it last week, when you feel a flaw that you could not control, being ashamed of that. And she finally has this path to controlling it by putting a veil on that nobody after this point has seen her face. You know, um, it's, uh, um, I don't know, it's not tying as directly in as I thought it was to what you were saying. Um, but I think, I think Abby's right that it's the idea of, of being admired but not being desired. 
you know, um, is a grief and a credit. Um, um, do you notice that kind of long bit of resentment towards the end where she uh, imagines that if she became a coward in the fight, they would remark. I mean, it's, it's amazing how the story fills out. It's something that hasn't happened. Then she writes the rest of the story. Then blames Psyche for the story she wrote. You know, she. It was. Oh, they would then say, "Remember how brave Psyche was when she went to her death, and she was so meek." And and then she added on all the other things that Psyche had outdone her in strength and beauty and and. Uh, all the rest, even the prophetic moment where she said, you know, I was a prophetess. Mm -hmm. um, those are all things that that Orwell's finding out that Psyche is better than she, and that's her... Well, it's, it, it's so painful to read in some ways. It's, it's like the shift at the end of this last chapter where she's going back and forth between Orwell and the Queen, and Orwell is, is weak and guilty and all sorts of things is not going to be able to stand. The queen has real capabilities, and she's going to queen it, um, cheat the gods. Um, um, is, is, the whole question is, who is she, anyway? We got, is she, I mean, is her character, her queenly character, someone entirely, a persona that is entirely not her? Because we, we've gotten to know the Orwell that's such a mess. I mean, uh, part of the story, I mean, the title of the book is Tilia Faces. She's... Faceless? Not... Yeah. In, in a manner of speaking, I suppose, that's one of the things she's avoiding. She's avoiding the gods by becoming the queen. And I think she makes that claim at one point that the gods can't get to her if she's a successful queen. Mm -hmm. She's always comparing herself to something else or somebody else and never taking responsibility for her own actions or her own failures. Did you think, remember she talks about, this week she talked about there was a time before she knew she was ugly? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and do you think that the good circumstance... She doesn't come across as some stinkpot little girl that was just kind of self-absorbed all the time. Um, but that her freedom from self-awareness when she was unaware of what she looked like um, allows her to bond with Psyche when Psyche comes into her life. And then she grows in a knowledge of her ugliness at the same, almost the same pace that Psyche grows in her absolute better than Aphrodite beauty. It's almost like they they are curses to one another um, and that she becomes this Orwell that that is just circling the drain. Uh, just, um, <clears throat> nothing's working out for her. Um, it's interesting that he sets up that um, that comparison early in the book, specifically with ugliness. I mean, with because uh, she's jealous of, of Psyche, 
like Angit is jealous of Psyche. Mm-hmm. We presume. Um, Remember, it said the goddess is this stone, this faceless yeah. stone, mm-hmm. uh, lumpy bit of rock, you know, and that's supposed to be the goddess of love, you know, and her faceless. And I, I, I hadn't thought of that with. Uh, um, not is, you know, what's the thing in this chapter that you two are psyche, will be psyche, uh, you two will be unget. You know, that's the, um, there is that demanding, jealous, mm-hmm. uh, don't be better than me. Right. And I also thought about that when we were just talking about uh, psyches of, Lewis Contrast psyches of uh, more generous love and her greater capacity to love and Oral can't understand it because she's jealous but ironically her love is like the shadow booth's love that she you know that she was projecting upon the god she's a she loves Psyche with the devouring love that's mm-hmm. um, yeah. all at once oh, loving, yeah. loving and consuming so Mm-hmm. She and Unge are both devouring mother right. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, it's a quarter after. You're free to go. You're also free to hear the end of this recording. Goodbye.